If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 14. We'll look at verses 12 through 24 this morning. Text is also in the bulletin for you. Some years ago, I was talking with a friend who had been a Christian his whole life. He'd grown up in a Christian home. He'd always gone to church. Uh, knew the Bible pretty well, knew good theology, read theology books. It was like his favorite kind of book to read, uh, big, big theology books. Uh, he could tell you the gospel very clearly. And he also had a serious problem with drinking, alcoholism. Uh, he was really frustrated with that. He was frustrated with that fact of his life. Frustrated with his life, especially the fact that he didn't seem to be improving. Didn't seem to be making much progress. In fact, he was really upset that he hadn't kicked his drinking habit yet, that he'd been praying to God for years to free him from this addiction, and he still had this problem. It was just as bad as ever. In fact, uh, it became clear during our conversation more than just being frustrated at his own life. Uh, he was angry with God. He was angry with God for not making him a better person more quickly. He was so tired of feeling bad about himself. He wanted so desperately to feel good, to, to be good, to clean up his life and be more devoted. That's what he really wanted. Why wouldn't God want the same thing and just fix him? God could just snap his fingers and make him good. And obviously, God should want to do that and should want to answer a prayer to that end. So why wouldn't he? And my friend was visibly angry during this conversation. Let me just say, at this point, if you've got a desire for goodness that leaves you disappointed with God or frustrated with God or angry at God, that's probably not good. <laughs> it's probably not good. Right? There's some disconnect there. Jesus says... If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He's talking about a relationship. He says that in our passage. We're going to look at this morning several times in several different ways. He says this. He's talking about a relationship where love is at the heart of our activity, if you will, our behavior, our response to him, where love is at the heart of it. He isn't just talking about being good in some abstract sense. He's talking about our obedience. Keeping his commandments, things he's said to us. Responding to that. Our obedience. Again, relational term. That's what he's interested in. This relationship. That's what he's interested in. That's his agenda. And it's prayers along those lines that he actually says... Oh, I'll answer those prayers. He's committed to answering those prayers. God is a God of love. That is who he is. He is at work in us to show the world exactly that truth about himself, that he is a God of love. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to talk about from our passage this morning. <clears throat> Pray with me, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, it's easy for us to slip into a mindset of thinking of good abstractly, um, taking it away from the context of our relationship with you, 
all of life is about relationship with you. We pray that you would make us more mindful of that. Help us to be aware of it, especially as we consider your word, especially as we see Jesus in the gospel, especially as we hear him speaking to us and calling for a personal relational response to him. We pray that you would help us with that response by your Holy Spirit. As we consider your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. There's a lot going on in this passage. We're just not going to be able to talk about it all phrase by phrase, uh, verse by verse. Um, So invite you to join us for sermon discussion afterwards and ask any questions about things I, we, don't, we don't get to. But uh, let me get back to my friend who had a trouble with alcohol and was angry at God for not making him good. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. People are angry at God for not making them good. And it's worth your careful consideration because it's, it's more common than you think. And you probably struggle with things just like that. My friend conceived of goodness as some abstract thing that if he could attain enough of it in his own life, it would grant him a sense of relief. That's what he was looking for, a sense of relief, a sense of rest, a sense of security and peace. And these are all factors of what we call salvation. So in a sense, he's looking for salvation, and he's trying to locate that in his own goodness. That's what he was trying to do. If he could conquer the bad things and do only good things and pour forth only good things from his life, then, then he'd be able to live with himself. You could just imagine it. He'd be able to live with himself if he were good enough. And uh, what place did God play in that self-improvement project? He sought to use God. He sought to manipulate God to help him to get to that place. If only he could get there and be good enough, he'd find salvation, basically. To help him get to that place, he needed to leverage God. And so God became a means 
to the end of his being good enough. That's what really matters. If I can be good enough, I can live with myself, and God can help me there. Obviously, God wants things like that. I'm going to ask God to do that, and he should do it. That was the function of goodness. And that was the usefulness of God. And he got angry because God wouldn't comply. God wouldn't play along. And a lot of us scratch our heads. Why? Why won't God play that game? It should sound familiar to us because we're all prone to do the same thing. We want to be, maybe it's free from enslaving sins. You want to be free from that enslaving sin because you can't stand how it feels anymore to be stuck in it. And if, you, if only you were free, you'd imagine, then you'd feel peace. Then you'd feel relief. You'd feel good enough. You could live with yourself. Right? We want to be free from enslaving sins. We want to clean up our lives. We want to become more passionate about doing good works, big Impressive good works. We want to devote our lives more fully to ministry, whatever that means. Missions or service. Because so far we're not good enough, but we could be. We could be good enough. We just need God to give us a little push start, and then we could be on our way, mostly under our own power. And that gets exposed actually for the sin that it is. It's actually sin. Just call it what it is. It, ex- it gets exposed for the sin that it is when we get depressed about our progress toward goodness. Or when we get proud about our achievement of goodness. Then we can start to see how we've wanted to be good for our own sake. I just want to be good. I want that for my own sake. And that's where it gets exposed. Because we've detached goodness from our relationship with God. We just want to feel good about ourselves. Over against that. And that's just self-righteousness. That's basically what that is. Self-righteousness. And either you're pretty bad at it and so you get depressed about it. Or you're really good at it and you get proud and arrogant about it. Right? But that's just self-righteousness. Over against that, Jesus connects everything back to God. Everything in life. Everything that the Bible's about gets connected back to God. A changed life will mean, first and foremost, a renewal in your relationship with God. That's where, that's that's the heart of a changed life. One characterized by love. Interpersonal, relational, right? Not just some abstract moral virtue. Love, where we listen to what he says. We listen to what he says. We're receptive to him. We're responsive to him, where we're happy for his word, everything that he says, we're happy for it to declare reality to us, we're responsive to him, where, where he defines goodness, he's the definition of goodness, and it's his goodness, his own goodness, that we look to praise and laud before others. That's the way Jesus talks about it. Rodney Whitaker is a commentator on John's Gospel. He says, this is a quote that uh, is at the beginning of the bulletin there uh, for you. He says, love for Jesus involves both an attachment to him and a oneness with him and his interests, which naturally leads one to obey him. Obedience is strong language, I know. (laughs) Um, But it leads, love leads one to obey Jesus. 
and to walk as he walked. One obeys what one loves. Indeed, our patterns of obedience reveal what we really love. So the way we're made, it's inescapable. And that's the way Jesus talks about it three times in the passage as far as I could see. Very explicitly, he says in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments, he says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And Jesus is talking about in those two verses, commandments very particularly. You know, a commandment is where he says, do this, don't do this. It's imperative language. It's good to keep that clear in our minds. And when he talks about it in this passage, he says that it's, it's the Father's commandments. It's not just his commandments, but it's the Father's commandments. But they are his commandments. And so he's equating himself with God. And he's saying, God's commandments, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments, which are God's commandments. You're going to listen to me as if I were God, because I am. And you're going to do what I say when I tell you what to do. It's pretty strong language, commandments. He says it a little bit differently in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And that's a much broader sense. The whole scripture is God's word. It declares all of reality to us, right? It's actually very rare for Jesus to issue commandments. Very rare compared to all the other things that you see him say or hear him say in the Gospels. I I looked at it this morning, went back through the Gospel of John, thankful for the red-letter version of the Bible because it was sort of easy for me to pick out Jesus' words and look through and do a quick scan. Very rare for him to issue a commandment that actually is something universal for his disciples, something that's not just like pick up your bed and walk to this particular paralytic that he heals. (laughs) But, But actual commandments, he's given a few of them just recently. Things like believe in God, believe also in me, let not your hearts be troubled, love one another. That's very few things that actually qualify as commandments. Otherwise, he's talking about his word, the reality that he's declaring to them, the good news that he's declaring to them, revelation of God that he's declaring to them. And if that's something that's important to you, and if you keep it, if you're responsive to it, then it shows that you love me, is what Jesus says. And it sounds a lot like what we read in Psalm 119, which is a whole huge psalm, um, in the Psalter about the word of God. And uh, it says in, in verses 10 and 11, the psalmist says, with my whole heart, I seek you, God. Not just to be good. I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Just like goodness isn't some abstract thing, sin is not some abstract thing. It's a relational violation against God. And the psalmist is saying, I want your word just stockpiled in my heart so that our relationship will be better. (laughs) Because I love you. This is profoundly personal relational, the way that the whole Bible talks about this, and the way that Jesus is talking about this now. And so Leslie Newbigin He has a commentary on this passage again. It's on the beginning of the bulletin there. It says, obedience, again, that strong language that we just resist by nature. Obedience is a test of love. 
And love is the content of obedience. So the very first thing you should recognize is that in all honesty, this is foreign to your experience. This is foreign to your instincts, your natural instincts, to say these kinds of things to God. I love you, and I want to stockpile your word in my heart so that I don't sin against you, because our relationship is the most important thing to me. That's not what we're like. The, the starting place for all of us is to recognize that's not what I'm like. You don't keep God's commandments because of your great love to him. You haven't sought him with your whole heart. You haven't internalized his word so as not to violate your relationship with him. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to admit that. The Bible is telling you all the time that that's true, even though you don't want to acknowledge it. It's true, and you should just admit it. It's okay. It's okay to admit it. In fact, you can go further. My friend, back to my friend who struggled with alcohol, He was in denial about being angry. It was visible on his face. And when I pointed it out to him, he denied it. No, I'm not angry at God. It's a terrible thing to recognize in yourself that you've hated God, that you've despised him, that you haven't loved him. It's a terrible, painful thing to recognize in yourself because you wonder, what happens? What happens to me when my heart is like that? But you can go further because of the gospel. You can go further and confess that you've conceived of goodness as a way actually to stand apart from God, to do life on your own, self-righteousness, that you've despised God for not facilitating that project and enabling you to be autonomous from him through your own good works. You can say that. It's, that's what sin is. That's a manifestation of sin. That's exactly what Jesus came to forgive us. And to change in us. He went to his death on the cross to forgive sins like that. Conceiving of goodness abstractly from God and using it to get away from God. Being angry at God because of the whole thing. Jesus forgives stuff like that. You can see his mercy and his grace for you in statements like this in our passage. I will not leave you as orphans. You sort of deserve to be kicked to the curb. (laughs) left out in the cold as an orphan. That's the life we all choose for ourselves through sin. But he's not going to leave us there. He's not going to leave us as orphans. He's going to come to us. And he says, because I live, and he's talking about his resurrection, after his death, he's raised from the dead, never to die again. And he says, because I live, you also will live. And we sing that, that song. Um, Some of us love that song that we sing. Jesus lives and so shall I. You can know that you're right with God because of him, because of his gracious initiative in sending his son to live and die for you and not leave you in the lurch, but to raise Jesus from the dead as, for your sake as a pledge of eternal life to you and to give you the Holy Spirit to bring you into the life of God, to bring you all the way in and to, to put the life of God in you. And it's this gift of the Holy Spirit that renews you and changes your life. And that's what Jesus is talking about through so much of this passage. And later in the upper room discourse, he said that because because he was going to the Father, he would ask the Father to send the Spirit. He's talking about Pentecost. That's what we see. Sort of the main idea of Pentecost that we have in our minds is Acts chapter 2 when Luke records it. But John has... 
his sort of theological understanding of Pentecost that he records later in John's Gospel, when Jesus goes to the Father, and it's because of his life with God that we get the Holy Spirit. He asks the Father to send his Spirit, and it's the Father's Spirit, and it's the Son's Spirit, and he comes to us as a gift. And this is the greatest answer to prayer. The Holy Spirit is the greatest answer to prayer, and when Jesus guarantees a prayer, that's the prayer he's talking about. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you this helper, this, this other helper, the Spirit of truth, to be with you forever. So, again, Rodney Whitaker says, praying in Jesus' name does not refer to some magic formula added to the end of a prayer. It means to pray in keeping with his character and concerns, and indeed in union with him. The disciples, through their union with Christ, are taken up into his agenda. So praying in Christ's name means in our relationship with him, asking for things that he's told us to ask for, because he wants them. They're the highest priority to him, and when we ask, he gives. So he isn't just signing a blank check for us to ask whatever we want. As long as you tack on in Jesus' name at the end, you're going to get it, right? He's saying that because God is the God of love, because he's this God that's revealed to us in Jesus, he will move heaven and earth, so to speak, to give you his own spirit. That's what he says, actually, pretty explicitly when he says this same kind of thing in, <clears throat> in Luke chapter 11. It's recorded that Jesus says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's what he's talking about. Ask, seek, knock, you'll get it. Because the Father is good. Because he loves you. And he knows what's good. And so he'll give you the Holy Spirit when you ask. That's what Jesus is talking about. So when the, fa- when the Spirit of the Father comes, then we're no longer orphans. We're no longer left on our own. Because he's, he's also the Spirit of Jesus, the Son. Jesus can say, I'm coming to you. When the Spirit comes to you, I'll not leave you orphans. I will come. I'll come to you. And he brings divine love with him, and he catches us up into the Son's relationship with the Father. It's the essence of eternal life, the Son's relationship with the Father. And he brings you into that through the Spirit. So Jesus talks about the Spirit and himself here, sort of interchangeably in a couple places. The Spirit dwells with the disciples because Jesus is with the disciples. And then when the Spirit comes to be in the disciples, Jesus is coming to be in his disciples. And that reminds me, anyway, of Zechariah's prophecy, which Elizabeth read for us this morning in our Old Testament reading, where it's the Lord who says, it says, the Lord declares, I come and I'll dwell among you and you shall know that the Lord has sent me. The Lord's the one declaring it, and he's saying that the Lord has sent him. Is the Lord the one dwelling in us, or is the Lord the one who sent the one 
who's dwelling in us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a feature of the Trinity. Get used to the strangeness, right? Um, and actually, it's because of that, that mutual indwelling thing that we've been talking about where Jesus says, I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. Mutually indwelling. And this is true because of the communion of the Holy Spirit, the one who is the very love of God in person. So when that Spirit comes, the one who makes it so that the Father's in the Son and the Son's in the Father, when that Spirit comes to dwell in us forever, it means that God in all his fullness dwells in us. God the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father dwelling in us in love. That's what Jesus says. Verse 20, in that day, in that day, the day of Pentecost, the day the Spirit comes to live in you, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So it's not just a head knowledge that he's talking about. I mean, he's told them this kind of thing over and over again. But in that day, you will have the understanding of experience, of divine love. You'll know that the Father's in the Son, and the Son's in the Father, and you're in Him, and He's in you. When the God of love comes to dwell in you by His Spirit, the Spirit comes, and He fixes us on Christ. He's the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit of the gospel. He's the Spirit of good news that comes from God. Reality. And that means he convicts us of our sins and he convicts us of our need for grace, our need for Christ. But especially he's convicting us of Christ himself. He's fixing us on Christ. That's what the Spirit does. He, and he makes us to know the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Apart from the Spirit, you wouldn't really know that. But he makes you to know the relationship Jesus has with the Father. The Spirit comes to fill us up with that very relationship and to change us. By causing us to love Jesus, because now the love of the God who is love dwells in us. He makes us hang on, on Jesus' every word. He makes us embrace his revelation. He even helps us to obey. Do what Jesus says. Be responsive to him. And think of all of life in terms of that personal relationship with God. So in this divine relationship of love, is at the heart of what we do, and we become receptive and responsive to Jesus, not just thinking of ourselves, pursuing some abstract goodness, some moral virtue, but relationally with Jesus. And it sounds silly to say it, big things can happen. Big things can happen. He says at the beginning of the passage, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to give you the Spirit. It's because of who Jesus is, ascending to the Father and sending the Spirit to us, you're going to do greater things than Jesus himself has done. He's saying to his church, what is he talking about? <laughs> we, we start to see it the very day, in that very day of Pentecost, when he gives the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, you see Peter Stubborn Peter, bonehead Peter, Peter who abandoned Jesus. 
Peter preaches one gospel sermon and 3,000 people come to faith, come to believe in God and the church. I mean, I don't know how much that multiplies the church, right? But it's far more people than followed Christ. Jesus himself, three years of ministry on earth, his following paled in comparison to the first day of Pentecost. Christ's heavenly ministry, that's what that is, Pentecost, pouring out the Spirit to enable us to do these great works, to to empower his church. It's Christ's heavenly ministry, no longer his earthly one, but it's resulted in greater, more numerous, global works of evangelism and service than was ever possible in his own earthly ministry. Jesus was sent into the world for this purpose, to carry the message of the Father's love to all who would receive it, to all who would believe it. And by sending his own spirit to all of his people, every single one who names the name of Christ, he's extended his mission through us in orders of magnitude, inconceivable. Because of his own spirit in us, because of our relationship to God, because of our responsiveness to Jesus Christ, we are now fulfilling God's original purpose for humanity. When he created us, as he commanded us, the very first thing he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth ultimately with God's love. Let love multiply. Let love abound. Or as Jesus recast it in the Great Commission for us, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them into the name of the God who is love. And teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. To observe everything that I've told you. God is a God of love. You see that in Jesus. You know that because of the Spirit who makes you to know the relationship of the Father and the Son. You know who God is if you have the Holy Spirit. God's very being, God's very life is love, and it's open to all who believe. And he's at work in you if you love Jesus, and you keep his word, and you treasure it in your heart. He's at work in you to show the world that he is indeed the God of love. That's his agenda, that's his mission, and those are the kinds of prayers that he will answer when you ask. So let's get on board with that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, left to our own devices, we would never understand you, but uh, you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit so that we can know you, know you relationally, know you intimately because you live in us, you dwell with us and in us, and you will be with us forever. You've pledged yourself to us, you've given yourself to us, And you've filled us with all the fullness of God. And this is something that is objectively true for believers, for those who trust in Christ. And so we pray now that you would make us to know the truth of it. Make us to respond to the truth of your presence in us and with us. You are the God of love. This is not just systematic theology for our minds. This is something for our hearts. This is something for our relationship with you. This is something that will change our relationship with everyone we know. So we pray that you would fashion us 
more and more in the likeness of Jesus, who is ultimately responsive to you, Father. Make us like Jesus so that we can live in this world with you and in you and for you in ways that glorify the Father through the Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.